Hey guys, Clay Edwards here. I want to tell you real quick about RC Lawn Care. My buddy Richard Coley is going to be the guy you need to contact for all of your lawn maintenance needs. You can reach him at 601-502-3529. They offer roof-to-curb service, blowing off the roof, gutter cleaning, basic lawn care, including mow, trim, edge, and blow, full lawn cleanup, trash removal, garden supplies delivered, pine straw installs, driveway, and sidewalk pressure washing. If grass is growing, you need RC Lawn Care mowing. Again, 601-502-3529. Richard Coley at RC Lawn Care. Proud sponsor of the Clay Edwards Show podcast. All right. This is your G-Man, Radio G-Man, Chris Hinkle. I'm in for Kim Wade today. Kim was unavoidably detained and could not make it in today. If you're listening in the background, you're hearing a lot of thunder uh, starting to really storm over here in Flora. Hope everyone in Mississippi is doing well, staying dry. Uh, And actually, I'm probably enjoying this little bit of rain much better than the uh, sun temperatures that we had here in the past few days in Mississippi. Uh, Those things tend to drain somebody at my age, approaching almost 60 years old. So I wanted to open up the show today with some things that I always intend to cover when I'm guest hosting here, either for for Kim or Jameson Haygood or anyone else. And that's some of the things that got me involved in local politics. How did I get to the point where I said, you know what, it's time to start holding some accountability for our elected representatives. It started off very simple. Uh, I had retired from the FBI in 2019, and shortly thereafter we were going through this thing, this COVID emergency. I've always been apprehensive when the government puts these emergencies out because they tend to be followed by the government taking some of your liberties for a short period of time. Now, most citizens are reasonable. They will go through in their mind of, okay, I'm willing to give up some of my liberties for a short period of time. And during that short period of time, I'm trying to give the government enough opportunity to assess the situation and identify what the potential risks are and identify those risks to me so that then I can make a decision how me and my family will comport to those potential risks. It's really our decision. It's not the decision of the government to protect me from everything because that usually comes at a cost of giving up something to the government. I remember sitting there when the, the COVID stuff started happening in Madison, Mississippi, and wondering... What's going to happen the first time? I think it was the first time I drove out in my truck. It was a dark night. It was like a Tuesday or Wednesday. Eerily quiet. And I'm heading out at about 8 o'clock, wondering if anything's going to be open. But at the same time, I was also wondering, how am I going to handle this if I get to a point and I'm being told that I'm not allowed to be out? I'm not allowed to engage in commerce. I'm not allowed to freely go about my way. How am I going to handle that? I actually was kind of nervous about it. I'm sure many of you were at the time. Not just worried about the 
you know, this virus thing that the government was telling us about and all these experts were telling us about what little information that they had, which wasn't much more than any of us had. But what liberties were we giving up at the time? Went back to the house, sat with my wife. We had uh, one of our kids was still in the house at the time. And we just talked about it a little bit and decided, all right, reasonably, what, what should we think about doing? And I thought about it, and I said, you know what, I'm going to give the government about 60 days. To, I'll give them till about the beginning of May to assess the situation. It was clear that they were unprepared for this. You would think with all of the resources, the funding, the tax uh, base that we provide to the government, that the government would actually go out there and, and that they would have some answers. They would have a plan in place. Um, wasn't the case. Having been on the inside of the government for the better part of 34 years with 13 years in the military and five of those as a uh, special agent investigating federal crimes for the Air Force and the next 20-plus with the FBI, I knew that some of that preparation was actually a facade. But decisions had to be made. And, you know, I can't remember who said it, but no plan ever really overcomes the first test of battle. You have to rely on your training and experience and basically your instincts to survive, to be able to overcome things. So I give them until the beginning of May, and I said at this point, I would expect them to come back and tell me, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, these are what we think the risks are, and these are what we don't, you know, we're not quite sure about. That didn't seem to happen by the 1st of May. So at that point, I had a decision to make. Was I going to continue to comply? And that was basically complying with the wishes of what the government wanted me to do. Now, I'm not saying go out there and engage in insurrection or anything like that. I don't want to get off on tangents and talking about January 6th. But I do want to talk about your liberties and your rights, because those are things that I hold dear. They're things that I swore an oath to protect and defend and actually give my life for in that defense twice. Once in swearing that oath with the FBI and once with swearing that oath when I entered the military in 1986. So I had to think, first, my noncompliance. Was that going to be a legal issue, or was it going to be an, a difference of opinion type issue? Was it going to be something where someone in a position of a authority, whether that's actual authority or not, uh, would decide this is what I want you to do or this is what you must do? Well, a little bit of my training experience, primarily with the FBI, had me go back and take a look to see... Well, number one, this person that's telling me to do this, do they have the authority under the Constitution to do that very thing? Can they tell me what to do? There are certain things that they can tell you what to do. 
traffic officers. They can enforce the speed limit. They can tell you this is the speed limit you drive. But how are they able to do that? They're able to do that because we give them the authority to do that by acquiescing on our liberties to those individuals. We've all agreed upon that our representatives, we want you to put forth this legislation that says this is the speed limit. This is what is safe and comfortable for us to drive based on the evidence and information that we have. And then we allow them to enforce that. And we don't engage in anarchy in saying that if you get pulled over and you get a ticket for speeding that, you know, you're just not going to pay the ticket. You're just going to ignore it. There's consequences to that that we've all agreed upon as well. So getting back to the COVID thing, I had to start looking at, all right, what's, who's telling me to do what? What are they telling me to do? And do they have the authority to do that? The first thing that I noticed, and it's usually a knee-jerk reaction from those in the executive branch, and you see it, it, it happens pretty much with every president that once they get into office, they issue executive orders. And there's a misunderstanding about what those executive orders are. I like Tate Reeves as a person. I've talked to him. I bumped into him a couple of times on a soccer field when his kids are out there playing. Heck, I've even officiated some of his kids' soccer games. I do some soccer officiating in my spare time. But I knew he didn't have the authority to tell me to do a lot of the things that were being told. An executive order, and this is something the last time I, w- I sat in for Kim and we discussed it with my brother-in-law, who's a, an attorney over in Alabama, is what are these powers of these executive orders? Well, executive orders do carry the, the weight of law. But why? That's because executive orders have to have a foundation in law. There has to be a law at its base. And that executive order is used to administer the government's executive branch's response and how they're going to comport or enforce that law, how they're going to navigate resources and things like that. But it still has to be based in law. So I I started asking questions, and this is kind of where I started getting into the politics of everything. A lot of our elected representatives don't like you to ask questions. They want to be able to put on their own facade of demonstrating to you that they know better. They know better than you on how you should comport your life. Even if they do something totally different. Heck, if you look in the news today, you see John Kerry is out there trying to tie climate change to the crisis in Ukraine. Ridiculous. The... Executive orders are only what you allow them to be in the instances of of things like the governor. So when Tate Reeves was telling me, you will go into, when you go into an establishment, you'll wear a mask. When he was telling the kids, especially the ones in Madison, you can't go to the park. Can't congregate in the park. You can go to Walmart, hang out at Walmart. Better wear your mask, but you can hang out in large groups in Walmart. Really wasn't pushing a lot of the six-foot distancing stuff. But if you go back and think about all of the things and the repercussions that happen 
from those misunderstandings of what those executive orders entail, look at what we went through. And if we don't go back and examine it, what do they say about those that don't study history? They're doomed to repeat it. Let's go back and look at what happened. Small businesses were shut down. They were told to shut down while big box stores were left open. People were told to start working from home. Children were told that they couldn't go to school and congregate with each other. Even though parents, rightfully so, were saying this is going to impede the education of our children. This is going to cause a long-term effect on their test scores. There's studies out right now in the news that show nationwide test scores are down. And those things are generational. It will last a long time. The earning potential of those children in the future has diminished because of the actions of the government and the actions that we allowed the government to take. Now, getting back to those executive orders, how did I handle it? Now, I'm not saying I handled it the best way, but I can tell you it worked for me. I did my homework. I asked my friends in law enforcement, if I do A, what happens? If I do B, what happens? And I, I'm good friends with a lot of the people, especially the ones in local law enforcement and many of the surrounding counties of Madison. And we've got some good God-fearing men out there that respect and revere the Constitution. And they told me, unless there's a law or an ordinance, and those laws have to be something that we as a society has agreed upon and expressed our will and intent through our elected representatives, and it's passed through legislation signed by the executive branch and passes constitutional muster by review of the Supreme Court of Challenged, that they really couldn't do anything. I found as long as I wasn't disturbing the peace, I wasn't creating a disturbance, I wasn't becoming violent, wasn't violating any other actual laws on the books, really couldn't do anything if I just walked into Walmart without a mask on, Kroger without a mask on. So I did. I want you to think about this over the break, about what happened back then. And when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit more about how we get some accountability so that we're not doomed to repeat these problems again. I'm Chris Hinkle in for Kim Wade on WYAB. This is Radio G-Man Chris Hinkle in for Kim Wade, who is unavoidably detained today. We're going to open up the phone lines a little later in the show, and uh, you can write the number down now on the Complete Exteriors call-in line of 601-879-0002. Get that keyed up in your phone, and I'll let you know when the phone lines are going to open up, and uh, we'll take some questions. But I want to continue with my thoughts about this accountability thing. So getting back to what I was talking about, we're going through the COVID crisis, and I put that in air quotes. And I'm a little nervous about going out, not nervous about the virus. That that really didn't bother me at all, never bothered me at all. From day one, I looked at it pretty much the way I looked at the flu. I said, okay, this thing's probably going to burn out as long as we can get outside and get some good sunlight. Isn't it amazing? Sunlight is the best disinfectant, not just for viruses, but for politicians. And that's where we're going to talk about accountability. 
So going back, we've got the parks closed, kids are home, people are working remotely, small businesses are shut down. And it's interesting, as I listen to these politicians out there on the stump speeches, you don't hear them talking about this. Why is that? It's because we don't ask them about it. One of the premises that I put forth is we all we all have elected representatives. If you read the Constitution, the word leader doesn't appear in the Constitution. I get frustrated when I hear leader of the free world or leader in the Senate or our elected leaders. That's giving them way too much reverence. They do, in fact, work for us. They are our representatives of our will and intent. And if you can't have a conversation with your elected representative, then I would argue that you don't have a representative. Because that person doesn't think enough of you to talk to you about your concerns. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, every representative should sit up there with a line outside their door of constituents wanting to march in and talk about things that are on their mind. They wouldn't be able to serve the people if that's all they did. But on certain things, they should have that conversation with you. Your constitutional liberties would be number one. It's amazing, and a lot of representatives don't seem to be cognizant of this. It's literally the one thing they swear an oath to do. Nothing else matters unless they protect those liberties. And we've seen that when those liberties are infringed upon, that's when chaos ensues. And most of those politicians tend to point the finger back at you when the chaos ensues, even though they're the ones responsible for causing it by infringing on your liberties or not protecting you from those people that infringe upon your liberties. Remember, getting back to the one thing that they swear an oath to do. So May of 2020, I decide I'm not wearing the mask anymore. I wore it out of courtesy. I didn't like having to wear it out of courtesy. I thought it was discourteous of others to force me to acquiesce to their fear. So I just quit wearing it. It felt a little odd the first time that I walked into Kroger without it on. And there's roughly about 150 to 200 people in the Kroger on 51. And I'm the only one in there without a mask. I thought at the time, and this is, this is something that is of great disappointment to me. I always have such great faith in the American people, my fellow constituents, that they would stand up when someone was infringing upon their liberties without their consent. And that didn't happen. I don't know what went wrong on how people over the course of two years decided I'm just going to do whatever they tell me to do. Now you were getting rewarded with it. There was that little pellet like in the experiments dealing with mice of giving you just a little bit of money if you're willing to go along with it. But I watched as these liberties were infringed upon. I listened as I heard people say that I was the bad guy because I simply said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Now, you've got to be willing to accept the consequences of it. Things can be tough. 
You can alienate friends. You can alienate potential clients for your business. But it gets back to that thing that I hold dear, the Constitution. You give up those liberties, does really anything else matter? Those are things that, these are, these are tough questions. These are tough, tough things to talk about. But it's incumbent upon us to talk about it right now and look back at the damage that was done and start asking those questions. So what did I do? During the next year, I started asking questions, logical questions. I have yet to find anybody that the questions that I was asking of individuals, representatives, fellow citizens, heck, even a news reporter from one of our major TV stations that I bumped into in a parking lot and just asked a simple question. I was listening as Dr. Dobbs and Governor Reeves were holding press conferences during that time, and I'm listening to some of the questions that are being asked, and I'm talking to friends of mine, and, and I said, are these questions that you, you feel need to be asked? Do you feel like that they're giving you the information that you're looking for? Tell us what you think, what you know, and what you suspect about this, this virus. I looked at some of the emergency situations that were going on at the time. I want you to think back to the spring of 2020. Remember how quickly it was reported in the news that we had all of these issues with the hospitals were being overwhelmed? Everywhere you looked, people were talking about it. On the television stations, in the newspaper, heck, in, the, in those press conferences with Dr. Dobbs and with Governor Reeves talking about how the hospitals were overwhelmed. But most people didn't take the time to look at the underlying circumstances that caused that. And when you looked at it, it wasn't a virus. It was choices. It's primarily financial choices. For example, if you will go back and look in May of 2020, and you can search this unless the article has been taken down, you'll find in the Clarion Ledger an article dealing with University of Mississippi Medical Center. When the government's reaction to the virus, that's why when people tell me about COVID, no, it's the government's reaction to this COVID that was the problem. The virus was never really the problem. A lot of the elective surgeries, elective procedures were discontinued at that time. Now, that to me didn't comport with the hair on fire, all hands on deck mantra that was out there that COVID was causing all these problems. Wouldn't you think that we would want every, every medical hand on deck? You know, a podiatrist goes through much of the same medical training that a surgeon goes through, that an internal medicine specialist goes through. Would you rather have a podiatrist examining you in the emergency room, if that's all that's available? Or would you rather have no one or someone that's not even medically qualified to take a look at you? I'd go with a podiatrist if I got nobody else. At least he's been to medical school. At least he kind of understands how the 
body functions, the internal organs, where they're at, things like that. But that wasn't the case. They laid off a bunch of people. They didn't just lay off the doctors. They laid off the nurses. They laid off the support staff. There's a lot of people that were laid off. A lot of that support staff that was there that was laid off meant that beds available in hospitals statewide weren't being serviced, weren't being cleaned up. So it reduced the amount of available beds, number one, and then beds that could be staffed with doctors, nurses, and others. By doing that, an emergency ensued, and that's why we had the shortages in the uh, stress and strain on our hospital system. It wasn't because of this virus. It was because of the reaction to this virus. Looking back on it, learning from being, hindsight being twenty twenty, and learning from our mistakes, what would have happened had we not laid those people off? We didn't reduce the number of hospital beds. And we got people outside to get some good old vitamin D from the sun, you know, that disinfectant. I think this thing would have burned out during the summer. Now, I'm not a, people will say, you're, you know, you're no scientist, you're no doctor. No, but I got a pretty good bit of common sense in looking at the way things work. And yet, I have found no one that can counter that argument that we shouldn't have had everybody outside, that we just go ahead and let this burn through. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about some of the accountability that I've brought to some elected representatives in Madison and some other goings-on in Madison. This is Chris Hinkle in for Kim Wade on the Kim Wade Show on WYAB. All right. This is Chris Hinkle, your G Radio G-Man. Almost said G-Man on the wall. That's what I say when I'm on the Jameson Haygood Show. On the Kim Wade Show, it is your Radio G-Man. Just having a pleasant conversation here with a producer. Uh, we were talking a little local politics and, and how things work in Mississippi. And uh, both of us kind of agreed on the same thing, which is return on investment. So when whenever you hear your elected officials talking about things, about investing money, just remember, they're spending your tax dollars. That means it's your money. You're handing your money to someone else that takes a service fee because they have to pay people in the government to handle that money to invest it on your behalf. And you have a right to ask them, what is the return on that investment? If we're going to spend $500 million up in the Golden Triangle, when do we as taxpayers get to see a return on our investment? When do we get our money back? So getting back to holding some people accountable. Uh, real quick, we, we just had a caller call in. I was going to wait a little while to call in, but uh, for callers to call in, but we got a, uh, an individual on the line right now who wants to talk a few issues. Bob, this is Chris Hinkle in for Kim Wade. What's on your mind? Hey, uh, good afternoon, Chris. This is Bob Anderson. Hey, I met your wife this weekend. She came by the house, uh, so I was out cutting grass. Couldn't get her to man the weed eater, but uh, she she was a pleasant pleasant uh, pleasant person to visit with. So, what what issues did you want to discuss, Bob? Hey, Chris. Yeah, I just wanted to chat with you. I heard the theme today of government encroachment on uh, on our fundamental liberties, and it really touches uh, touches me in the gut. I I really believe strongly in that. 
you talked about masks and, and how, you know, the government pushing beyond its constitutional boundaries. And, and I really, I believe that's true. From the beginning of the pandemic, I saw the effects of how government was shutting us down and was hitting my business, hitting my hotel business and our ability to survive. Um, you know, even the, the pushing of vaccines and things on people as a condition to work was a, a step that went beyond its limits and uh, concerned me greatly. Um, we see this in, in many other ways, and it's been going on, and I think increasing over time. Is you know, we see uh, we see the Biden administration stepping into states now and saying, "Hey, uh, if, under Title IX rules, we're going to pull your education funding from your state because." You know, well, Johnny just feels like a girl today, and he's going to be in the girl, girls' room, or else we'll pull your funding. And uh, there's no Article One, Section Eight authority for them to uh, to handle our education dollars like that. So it concerns me, and I appreciate you uh, raising this. Yeah, it's uh, it's I, I think it's just it's it's beyond time to challenge some of these individuals. And you know, I I got a little bit of flack when I first started asking questions of elected representatives. Uh, from talking to everybody from Michael Guest to Congressman Trent Kelly to Senator Roger Wicker to, you know, some of the people that work around them of asking those questions. Uh, the one thing that they can't say is that I was ever hateful, mean, or disrespectful. I just ask questions. And if you don't answer the question, it, at least some of my training and experience kicks in that uh, I'll ask the follow-up question, or I'll say getting back to this. But I think the way to handle this, and this is what I'm I'm trying to educate the listeners on today, and I've, I've been meaning to talk about this the last couple of times I've been on, is is how to challenge those representatives. Because you've, you've got to ask them those questions to let them know what's on your mind, what's important to you, and then you got to look to see what they're going to do about it. I get so frustrated when I hear a politician being interviewed. There's a, another large radio station here that when they ask the question uh, or they talk about something, there was, uh, I think one of the congressmen was on and they were talking about the border and they were making fun of Mayorkas and they were making fun of Merrick Garland and others. And I said, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Making fun of them doesn't really do anything about it. It's like sitting in your living room and complaining about your elected representative, unless you challenge them on it. It doesn't really change anything. Bob, I know you've done some writing, and I, I've read some of your stuff. What's, what's that website uh, where some of your work is posted, uh, some of your constitutional writings? Yeah, uh, Chris, I began writing about uh, just uh, before the 2020 election for the Federalist. Um, our uh, editor-in-chief is Molly Hemingway, who you, uh, folks may see on the news. And uh, I began writing, honestly, it was out of a, a concern for what I was seeing happening in 2020. And I had a property threatened by a planned protest, and it got me writing that night. As I went home and I saw across America, I saw places burning, and I saw the lack of law enforcement. And that one post began to draw a following, and because of that, I got picked up by the Federalists. And I began writing about issues that I hope mattered to, to average voters and citizens. My first piece published was about the warning of the dangers of mail-in ballots. And then in October 2020, just weeks before the, the presidential election, I wrote a piece called Where's Hunter's Money? And I dove in with... Uh, kind of looking at it from my CFO eye and found millions of unexplained income that Joe Biden had uh, flowed through his 2017 taxes, but for which we to this day don't know the the true source of it. Well, Bob, I appreciate you calling in, and that's uh, thefederalist.org, if I recall? 
thefederalist.com and have an author page there. So I always tell people you can you can look it up and see everything I've written. It's there in black and white. Okay, well, folks out there, if you get a chance to go to thefederalist.com, search, search for Bob Anderson, take a look at some of his writings. I've read some of his uh, works on the Constitution, well written. Thanks for calling in, Bob. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. All right, so getting back to holding people accountable. How are we going to do that? And it is, it's sort of like sitting behind this microphone for your first time. The first time I was in here, I remember telling uh, the producer that this was much harder than being an FBI agent, you know, <laughs> potentially getting shot at or or uh, or wrestled to the ground by, uh, by a bad guy, uh, that this was much more difficult. Uh, but as I've done it a couple of times, you get a little more comfortable with it, and you kind of figure out where your sweet spot is. So I started figuring out what my sweet spot was with the government uh, and uh, uh, holding the government accountable. So I just started asking questions. Uh, started off with posting a little bit online. Uh, I would see something that was being said during this again, quote, COVID emergency, and I would post in the comments section, hey, this is wrong. Where's the legal authority to do this? And people would kept citing an emergency. And I kept looking at the Constitution, and I, I can't find this mysterious emergency exception that allows things to uh, go beyond our constitutional rights. Just frustrating. And uh, I, I started noticing that they weren't addressing our constitutional liberties. So I just started asking the questions. I kept asking them over and over. I actually got into some debates with some fellow FBI agent retirees. Just like in any profession, there are people that think a little more of themselves and go beyond the bounds. I will tell you from being on the inside of the FBI, it, it's not just fodder to say that 99% of the employees of the FBI, the agents and the support staff there, they're there for the right reasons, and they're there to do the right things. But it only takes one bad apple to spoil a whole bunch, and that's what happened with a couple of people up in FBI headquarters that thought they had better ideas on how the country should run. They had better ideas on who should and should not be elected. A lot of those individuals were inexperienced in stepping out into waters uh, as an investigator for which they were not equipped. Andrew McCabe, Pete Strzok, those guys were not equipped to run FBI investigations. They had been out of the field for 15-plus years. That's, that's unreasonable to think that someone would have enough expertise to actually run the cases. And they were so arrogant that when agents and managers out in the field said, we're on the ground, we're right here where the action is, we should be running this investigation, they said, no, 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 no. And they pulled it back to FBI headquarters. We're going to talk about some of that stuff in the second hour. I've got a friend of mine that's going to be calling in uh, to discuss some cyber issues and give you some cyber tips in the second hour. But... We're also going to branch into talking about some of the warts and moles with the FBI. I saw that the FBI director was scheduled to testify today, and I'm sure that topic's going to come up. Again, we the show's going by fast. We're coming up on another break here. This is Chris Hinkle in for Kim Wade on the Kim Wade Show on WYAB.
All right. Welcome back to the Kim Wade Show. This is Chris Hinkle, your radio G-man. In for Kim Wade, who is unavoidably detained today. Uh, you can call in to the Complete Exteriors call-in line, completeexteriorsms.com. Telephone number is 601-879-0002 if you want to call in. If you're going to call Complete Exteriors, ask for Eddie at 601-326-2755. On the phone, we have one of our Herald callers. I recognize the name as soon as it was written on the board over here by the producer, Mobile Bob. What's going on, Mobile Bob? Hey, how's it going? Um, I really appreciate you with the comment you said earlier about, uh, you know, referring them to them as our elected leaders. I guess it's not too terrible of a phrase to call them. I guess to an extent they are um, an elected leader, but they don't act like our elected leaders even. But you're right, they are really our elected officials if you get to the meat of the – if you get right down to the core. Hey, you do answer to us. We don't – you know, we just don't take a vote every time we need to – something needs to happen. We let you do handle it. But you still answer to us. But they're like our elected rulers. Well, not even elected rulers. They act like they're, the, they're our rulers. That you, see, you were especially right about the way they acted during COVID. They truly act like, acted like rulers during COVID. And like you said, there, were, there was no carve-out anywhere for some state for an emergency, some state of emergency. But they somehow all this, these extra powers got found and it, it uh, got found for these these elected officials, and they started acting like elected rulers. Well, let me let me ask you let me ask you a couple of questions. Why are you okay with calling them leaders, with allowing them to refer to themselves as leaders? Uh, because to a certain extent, they do lead, and that you know they don't they don't consult us. They don't, they don't take vote of people every time they want to put in the road, or you know even pass a bill. But I agree with you. To it's only to an extent. Uh, they are still. Uh, they are ultimately our elected officials. I agree with you on that. Do they, do they lead to an extent? Yeah. But you're right. I guess we should just constantly refer to them as our elected officials. Well, no, actually, I, we should refer to them as what the Constitution says they are—representatives. And right, that, that's what—that's right. my whole—that's my whole posit. Right. Is getting back to the foundation of the Constitution. I don't refer to them as leaders. I don't recognize them as leaders. They're not leading me anywhere. They're there, according to the Article One portion of the Constitution, to represent the will and intent of the people. Now, they don't have to take a poll every time, but they should have enough conversations with their elected representatives to right. know what's on their mind so that they're acting in the interest of those individuals. And if they don't, they should be voted out of office. Now, you talked about the COVID thing. Why, why do you think they were able to do what they were they did in, in regards to COVID, of telling you what to do, where to go, uh, where you could eat, how much you could eat, whether or not you could go to church. Why were they able to do that? Yeah, oh, yeah, because they were, they found, they, the way they do a lot of things, they seem to just find extra powers uh, out of whole cloth. You know, this, the Constitution means nothing to these people, as, as we've constantly seen. And that started with the Supreme Court decades ago when they just kept finding laws uh, out of whole cloth. Now, this current Supreme Court, people are getting mad at them for reining some of that in, uh, saying, hey, we, we don't have any jurisdiction over it. The previous Supreme Court should not have ruled the way they ruled because they, that was not a court matter. Well, if, if, you, if, you, if, you're a student, if you're a student of the Constitution, there's always a recourse. And where is power derived from? 
the people. So right. the reason they were able to do this is because we allowed it. No one took the time to stand up and say, yeah, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, now, I, I did enough of my homework before I went out and just said, I'm not going to wear the mask and I'm going to go where I want to go and I'm going to spend money how I want to spend it. Uh, if my church decides to shut down and doesn't allow me to, to come in based on how the government was comporting itself, I'll deal with my church on that. Uh, and I, I can talk about that again at some other time. But the uh, the representative thing, I think just getting back to the core of the Constitution, that's what they are. Don't Don't entertain anything. Don't allow them to take that mantra of leader. We're going to take a break right now for the top of the hour. Bob, I appreciate you calling in. Call back again, and I I enjoy talking to you. This is Chris Hinkle for Kim Wade on WYAB. I hope you die and you sleep tonight. I hope you die and you sleep go straight to hell. I hope all y'all die and y'all sleep tonight. Y'all ain't nothing but some dumb southerners. Welcome back to the Kim Wade Show. This is Chris Hinkle, your radio G-man. I'm in for Kim Wade, who, again, was out today. I think he is he doing garbage pickup out in Jackson. I think that's what he's doing. He's actually driving a garbage truck out in Jackson picking up trash. So uh, if you see Kim out there, maybe just uh, give him a little wave, honk your horn or something if you see him on the back of that truck. All right, we're going to divert a little bit away from the topics we've been talking about to bring in a very good friend of mine. Uh, fellow FBI retired agent, Darren Mott. Now, Darren actually has a podcast of his own, the Cyber Guy podcast. You can catch Darren on LinkedIn, 
and he's always got some great information. We both started working in the cyber arena. Uh, I in Washington field office and uh, Darren was out in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he retired just shortly after I did. So Darren, we got you on the line now. How's it going? There, Darren. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, So uh, again, I got Darren Mott here, fellow retired FBI agent, cyber guy, podcast host. And uh, Darren, I was looking through, uh, I shared one of your, uh, topics from LinkedIn today, uh, some tips and tricks that you were giving for businesses out there. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're doing now and how you're trying to, I guess, deal with a lot of these uh, misnomers, or I hate to use the term misinformation because that just kind of gives the liberals some type of credence, but uh, how to overcome some of this information that's uh, false information that's out there in relation to protecting yourself or your business in the cyber arena. Uh, sure. Uh, and Chris, thanks so much for having me on, on your show. Uh, so just it's quick background. I spent 20 years in the FBI doing cyber, cyber crime matters, investigating cyber crimes, running cyber squads, um, did some counterintelligence work towards the end of my career as well, but always was involved in the cyber world. And prior to being an FBI agent, I was a high school teacher. And so since retiring, I'm trying to take those, those two skill sets, education and cybersecurity, really, and help people stay protected on this ever-changing, you know, online evolutionary world. Uh, and so I, I look at it from two tracks. It's how do you protect businesses and how do you protect individuals? And I guess actually it's three tracks. How do you protect them both together? Because obviously if you are not involved in cybersecurity on a day-to-day basis, you're probably not paying attention to the depth and breadth of the threats that are out there that target individuals. When you look at targeting of children, targeting of, of elderly particularly is concerning simply because they are the number one targeted age group um, from, from a cyber victim perspective. And then it's Gen X, or I'm sorry, Gen Z and, and younger kids uh, come in second. So how do we protect them? And then how do we protect businesses? Because obviously state-sponsored actors want to steal information. Russia uses their online and their national security infrastructure to spread misinformation and things of that nature. So um, part of my goal or mission, I guess, is to make people aware of all these things and try to keep them safe. So where can they uh, they find your information? I mentioned LinkedIn, and uh, it you can find Darren out there. It's D-A-R-R-E-N, and last name M-O-T-T. And if you just search Darren Mott, FBI, you'll find him. He has always got some amazing information, especially for business. I've, I, I try to share as much of that as I can. Why do we have such a problem that's out there? Are, are businesses getting a return on their investment that they're putting into their cybersecurity? No, and actually there was a report that came out yesterday, I believe, that showed that there's a ton of spending on cybersecurity, but the cyber bad guys are still winning, largely because I think there's a there's a leadership issue in businesses when it comes to looking at cyber threats and cybersecurity in general, because if you're a small and medium-sized business in particular, you don't necessarily have the resources to, to do what the larger companies can do from a cybersecurity perspective. You just basically do what you can to keep your computers going, and those companies are the ones that are most at risk. But you may see something, you may see that bright, shiny object that says, hey, here's a, here's a device. If you hook it up to your network, it'll prevent all ransomware. Well, those things don't really work, don't really exist, but people will buy them because they think, well, that's an easy fix. I don't have to hire anybody. I can buy this $10,000 tool, stick it on my network, and, and secure myself. Well, that's, that's poor leadership. That's, not, that's a lack of strategic thinking. 
It's a lack of looking at threat intelligence. There's a lot of free resources companies can look for uh, on LinkedIn and other places that just kind of give you a general overview of what the threat picture looks like, especially for your business sector. But a lot of companies just don't have the time or resources to look to that. Yeah, you, you mentioned about leadership. It all really comes down to leadership. And, and I don't mean from elected uh, representatives. I mean from you know the business leaders that are out there. Uh, on that same topic, we're we're on the outside now. We can speak a little more freely. The Hatch Act's not encumbering us. Mm-hmm. Are we getting a, a return on investment on our cybersecurity coming from the government? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, there's tons of wasted time and effort and money spent on, well, let's just take the executive order passed by the Biden administration in 2001 when they first took office. It had all these great plans and ideas. And, and the, the biggest the, the biggest one for me that really bothers me is the cybersecurity review board they said they're going to create that has all these people. And if you look at the list of names, it's all these former FBI senior executives that spent, you know, a coffee break in the cyber division. I mean, other than I'll give Sean Henry credit. He was assistant director. He did a lot of cyber stuff. So from a, from an FBI executive standpoint, I'll give Sean Henry credit. He has some cyber bona fides. But for the majority of those former bureau folks out there, there were SESers, their, their cyber skill set is somewhat lacking anyway so this review board's supposed to go out and like an ntsb anytime there's a cyber incident they'll go out and do a do research and then provide information on what that is have done nothing they took them two years to do a report on solar winds well by the time that report came out everybody knew what solar winds was solar winds had had a bad password on their distribution server which allowed the bad guys to get in and then basically infiltrate their malware into updates that solar winds would push out to other customers so um, I say all that to say that the government, we cannot absolutely, or nor should we, rely on the government to provide us with any kind of security perspective or smart strategy when it comes to cybersecurity. Yep. What did Reagan say, those nine most terrifying words? I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know, looking back over our cyber career, I remember both of us coming up and, and figuring out what our, our niche was going to be in the cyber area, you were more on the computer hacking side. I was uh, leaned more on the intellectual property rights. And I know that those things don't sound sexy out there, but, you know, the intellectual property rights is actually protecting the products that people buy out there. So, you know, going after the people that were bootlegging copies of, heck, in the old days of, you know, pieces of, of you know, video games or Game Boys or things like that, uh, now they, you know, most of that stuff's just kind of free online. Uh, but back then, we were we were doing the yeoman's work at protecting that. And one thing that I observe, and tell me what you you think about this, is is how much uh, people trying to quote make their bones and personalities and jealousy played into it. I, I was shocked at some of the the fantastic ideas that you and uh, Doris Gardner, you know, allowed you know facilitated with you as your supervisor down in Charlotte uh, that these great ideas that that seem to be coming from us out in the field and then you get some miscreant up at headquarters that says you know what I I really don't either don't like that person or I don't like the success that they have so I'm going to make things difficult I I mean I watched that uh, one of those undercover online undercover investigations that I put together that that ran for about seven years and you know millions and millions of dollars and put you know 
uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of people in, in jail for just stealing from small businesses and companies. And, and I watched one guy flip a switch and kind of kill it at FBI headquarters. Did you ever run across anything like that where you just kind of felt like, well, wait a minute, what I'm doing is actually pretty good. And what I'm doing is actually making a difference. Why are you guys having oh, I, a problem with it? I was going to say, where I got lucky, I think, in that same time period, as the early 2000s, the, the, there was no cyber division when I was doing my undercover, which is also IPR-oriented from 2001 to 2005. So I was kind of lucky because I could kind of, I could kind of man, not manipulate, but I could kind of um, massage my supervisors up at headquarters to say, hey, this is what we need to do. And because if you remember that during that time, cyber was moving from the criminal division back over to the counterterrorism division and then back to the criminal. So no one had it for any, for very long. So you always had a new supervisor. And then when it came to cyber, like, yeah, whatever, what do you need? Okay. I can get it. I guess I can get that to you. Where it became bigger issue was when cyber division came to be and you started getting, um, more of the, um, revolving door from Washington and Baltimore into headquarters running all the, all the, all the operations. And so there was certainly good supervisors from there, but you certainly had those that, you know, maybe saw the right on the wall say, I probably need to get into the cyber thing. I mean, I, I lost a job at headquarters in the IPR unit in 2006 to a guy who never worked cyber in the field. Um, but because he wrote a little better on his 954 form, which for those who don't know is the document you have to use to get promoted, at least during our time. Uh, and so you had to write these things. And he was, this was my first time doing it, and he wrote better. And, and, you know, good for him. It worked out better because that unit ended up disappearing. I ended up in a better unit at the end of the day. But it, it, that actually, you know, leads down, and I'm sure you've talked about this already many times. I've heard you talk about it. You know, it's, it's a leadership issue at FBI headquarters. I mean, James Comey came in and said, we want the FBI to be the leader, you know, the, the entity that provides leaders all over the world. Well, they're certainly never reached that with him. They're certainly not reaching it now. Um, and it's because of the way that leaders are chosen. Yeah, and I will give credit to Sean Henry. I, I mean, I, I knew Sean from my first days in the FBI when he was, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a supervisory special agent up in uh, what was then just like a cyber unit in under white-collar crime in the criminal division at FBI headquarters. And I remember him coming out to the squad in Washington Field and sitting with us and kind of learning about some of that stuff. And he definitely uh, took the reins and ran with it. Probably one of the last great uh, executives to come through the cyber division. No no intended disrespect. It, it just it is what it is. Sean has mm -hmm. uh, definitely taken that market. And those of you that don't know Sean Henry, he's uh, one of the big wigs at, at CrowdStrike now. And you can hear CrowdStrike commercials everywhere. Uh, sort of like Kevin Mandia. I don't know. Had you ever met Kevin? Oh, yeah. He came when, when the Charlotte Division opened their InfraGuard chapter. He was the guest speaker. I actually had the opportunity to pick him up and take him to the airport, so I talked to him quite a bit. Yeah, Kevin Mandia, uh, is, a, is a backstory real quick, he has this uh, appliance, uh, uh, network uh, security appliance that he developed, you know, from Mandiant. It was the name of the company, and I think he, he sold that company for millions of dollars. Well, I should have latched onto him earlier. He and I came up as uh, field forensic examiners as uh, Air Force of Office of Special Investigations agents, and I remember remember him when he when he left the OSI to kind of jump ship and go out with a, a large group. 
in the early 2000s into the uh, into the cyber world and stuff. And man, he landed really well. Hey, hey, Darren, can you hold on through the break so we can continue to talk a little bit more? I, w- I want to get some tips for for the average Joe out there and dispel some of these myths that uh, people have been hacked all over the place. My dad thinks he's been hacked every other day on his computer. Sure. All right. This is Chris Hinkle, WYAB. All right. Welcome back to the Kim Wade Show. This is your radio G-man, Chris Hinkle, retired FBI agent and just old fart retiree that hangs out here in Madison, Mississippi, telling people to get off my lawn. Uh, My fellow get off the lawn uh, friend is on the line with us now, and that's uh, Darren Mott, a cyber expert. During the break, we were talking about what the average citizen can do to protect themselves uh, talk about some of the things that you do, the habits that you get into, and some ideas that we can pass along to the listening audience there of how to protect themselves in this online environment. Right. So it really comes down to basic three basic things. First thing is be very weary or leery of emails you get. I mean, check your emails. If you're not if you're not expecting a document from someone and they send you a word document or they send you a PDF or something that you're supposed to open, question whether that's the case. I am getting so many of these a day; it is unbelievable. I must be getting 30 to 40 spam emails that are not going into my spam filters. They're coming directly into my mailbox, and I can tell they're fake because it's a picture of like a Office 360 five login or something like that. So you have to be very cognizant of those because what all those do really, they don't put malware on your system. They will ask for your login credentials. They'll say like your, your email is expired, enter your login and password. And then basically the bad guy has access now to your login and password. And ideally, so that's one thing. The second thing is have a long password. 13 characters or more is the best way to go. And like Chris and I were talking in the break, it's not a problem to write it down, write down your password to your accounts and keep them in your house. Um, but don't, tape them to your monitor, but maybe put them in a, put them in a book, some fold it up, put it in a book. Um, unless you're robbed by Mensa, no one's going to get your passwords. And the other thing is turn on multi-factor authentication, especially for your critical accounts. And what are your critical accounts? Well, think about what is, what are the accounts that would really cause you problems if someone got into them? Probably your financial information, your email, and your social media. So have distinct separate passwords that are lengthy from that. And, and don't be afraid to use a password manager on your, your phone or your computer or your iPad. Yeah, the uh, you were, you were talking about the writing the passwords down. Uh, that is one thing a hard lesson that I had to learn, and I've gotten into due diligence. So I, I'll tell you a couple of things that I do, and I'd be interested in, in how you comport yourself online. I, I'm a I'm meticulous, especially on my iPhone, about going through and clearing my cache and clearing out browsing history and all of that stuff. Uh, it seems to have cut down on some of the spam that comes out there with, you know, getting rid of those cookies and, and stuff like that. But I do, I, I keep a spreadsheet of, of pretty much every password that I have, when it was changed, what website it goes to, user ID, all of that. And I'll tell you why I do it. Uh, my mom passed away in February of uh, 2022, and we couldn't get into her iPhone. Uh, we couldn't get into accounts. We had no passwords. Couldn't find them written down anywhere. So it, we had to pretty much go through court orders to be able to get into things. Even with my dad being, you know, her husband, we couldn't get into it. So I write it down so that if something ever happens to me, my wife can go pull that spreadsheet up and can get access to our financial accounts, can get access to uh, email accounts, knows the user IDs and passwords for 
to get in to pay the cell phone bill, the things like that. It to me, it's just it's something I can do for my loved ones in leaving that information for them to find, even the pin code for my phone, uh, because I don't have the thumbprint or anything like that. Or I guess they could hold it up to my face once I'm gone and uh, possibly get it to open. I don't know how that would act. That seems kind of morbid, but you you got to be able to get the phone open. What are some things that you do, some habits that you get into that, that seem to enhance your security? You're never going to be 100% protected. Yeah, I say that's a great, great, great thing you're doing with the spreadsheet. It's genius because I had the same problem when my dad passed away and trying to help my mother get through all her accounts. We had the same issue, and so we had them all written down. Um, I have mine written down, but they are in an application on my phone, but it syncs up to my every digital device I have. So, But it's encrypted, um, and so you have to know the master password to get in or, have, like I said, have, my, have your face to get in. And I figure if, if someone is – has my phone and is using my face to get into my passwords, my passwords are probably the least of my problem at that particular point that, in time. That is so, true. So you basically just find, find, find what works best for you. I, I like the idea of writing it into a spreadsheet. What I, what I would suggest, if it's, um, if it's actually just a, a piece of paper spreadsheet, you're fine, but if it's a digital spreadsheet, there's nothing wrong with putting it in Excel, password protect that file and, make sh- and write down the password for that file and make that sure that's somewhere where your loved ones can get to when they need to go in and look. But I mean, I've told my wife many times, here's how you get into the password manager. You get all the passwords and usernames. Now, when, if, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and if she remembers it, it's probably 50-50 whether that's the case. But I've done all I can do. That's why I, how I look at it. Now, something else that I do, the, uh, the laptop that I use in my home office uh, I use external hard drives. I, I don't really put anything on that laptop. I mean, it's basically just a, a means of conveyance to get me onto the Internet. Uh, but like my business records and stuff, uh, the things like that, they're external hard drives, and I only I only hook them up when I need to hook hook up to them to, to save anything or, or add extra documents and stuff to it. I really don't keep anything on the laptop itself. Now, I know that if, if somebody was had the due diligence to, to get into my network and you know, look at the external hard drives and all of that. It's just, I I just don't think that I have enough information or enough things out there that it's a good return on their investment to hack me. Now, speaking of hacking, uh, my dad always brings this up, that somebody has hacked his home computer. Given your 20-plus years in the <laughs> FBI working cyber issues and your years since we've left the FBI, we both left in about uh, 2019, what are the odds that uh, my dad, my aunt, uh, my brother, uh, that somebody hacked my home computer? What What are the odds that some hacker got into their home computer? Pretty limited. Um, <laughs> I will say though, from a like, if it's if there is a domestic situation, you may have that, but even that's limited. I mean, like you said, twenty years. I talked to hundreds of people who came in and said, "Someone's someone's in my phone." I guess all oh, that someone's hacked in my phone, and you'd always get the letters. You got the letters, Chris, where you had to go through the you had to go through the complaint letters, and they all had the same handwriting. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a, if it's like because of of uh, mental illness, drugs that causes them that same handwriting. But since I've retired, I've been on some TV news shows and stuff, and so people know how to contact me. And I've gotten two letters in the last year, the same handwriting I'd got for 20 years from everybody else's center, and saying, "Hey, someone's in my computer. I need your help. They're you know they're going through you know whatever the wall." So yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah, um, the bad guys are looking for information that they can monetize, um, and the the home user is generally going to be the last line they're looking to get into. Yeah, it's sort of like, uh, you know, when we were coming up, everybody used to talk about how secure uh, uh, Mac, you know, Apple computers were. 
Well, that's because they weren't the prevalent computer that was out there. There wasn't a return on investment to hack them, and now that they're more prevalent, they get hacked just like any other computers. Well, and I, by the term hacked, I mean their vulnerabilities are exploited where people get information off of them. Hey, Cliff asked a question here, uh, and, and what, what's your thoughts on this? When should someone get a new phone, and how old uh, of a phone does it make it a security issue? And is it possible that an old phone, because my dad still has a flip phone, and he pays extra not to have text messaging on it, how much more secure is my dad's uh, Nokia flip phone over my iPhone? Way more, way more secure, because I'm sure you get the, the spam text messages as well. So I would say if you have a non, I mean, I, actually, I think Gen Z, a lot of them are going to non-smartphones as well. If you have a non-smartphone, it is it, impenetrable. You can't do anything to that as a bad guy. I, I mean, you, it's, there's nothing they can do with that. Smartphones, obviously, if you want to win, when should you replace it? When it's not, when the battery dies, probably when it's not working anymore. Or if, it, if there's some older phones that come to end of life where they're not supported anymore. Once they're not supporting it, then you need to get rid of it because every vulnerability that will ultimately be found will not be supported by the company. So, um, and it, whether you want to go Android or Apple, I recommend Apple simply because they do a little better job of securing their apps because you have to get it through the App Store. The Android's a little more freewheeling on that. Um, but it's still, it, as long as you have good digital hygiene, it's reasonably safe. But there have certainly been apps that have gotten into both that are data collectors. <laughs> There's one that's on both right now that's a huge data collector, TikTok. So, and that's, everybody can get access to it, but you might as well just say hi to, hi to Uncle, <laughs> Uncle Xi in China when you're on there. <laughs> yeah, you were talking about, uh, you know, the... the uh access to information and stuff. And one thing that I tell people, uh, don't be so freewheeling at giving your information to people. And no matter how much they tell you it's secure, uh, you know, even if you provide your personal identifying information to a healthcare provider or some business that says, you know, we secure this, sort of like Apple telling, you know, we won't share our information with the federal government or whatever. Uh, that tends to change once that court order comes in. I say if the information exists and you can find a judge to give you the order, you're, the government's likely going to get your information, whether they are legally authorized to get it or not. Uh, they'll, they'll deal with the repercussions on the back end. So I tell people to be very, very suspicious when people ask you for information, name, date of birth, social security number. I'm still fighting that battle now when people ask me, you know, hey, let me see two forms of ID. I show them my driver's license. You got another form of ID. I show them something else, you know, like my uh, – uh, gun card, and they say, "Well, that's got a picture on it." No, let me see your social security number. Well, that's that's not a not a that's not an ID. Well, Darren, I appreciate you taking the time to come in with us. Uh, I definitely want to have you back on, and we're going to chat some more. Tell people where they can find you again. Sure, thank, and thanks, Chris, for having me on. So, my podcast is called the Cyber Guy Podcast. With spy, cyber is spelled C Y B U R. The B U is a reference to Bureau from FBI. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Darren Mott, or Darren Mott, uh, Chris spelled my name earlier, and uh, the Cyber Guy on Instagram if you're so inclined. So, uh, I'm around there. Check him out, guys. He's got some great information on there, great tips, tricks, and will really help uh, help protect and defend your business out there. Thanks again, Darren, for calling in. Appreciate catching up with you. This is Chris Hinkle on WYAB, in for Kim Wade, taking a break now. All right, this is Chris Hinkle, your radio G-man, in for Kim Wade, who had to be out uh, today. And let's get back to what we were talking about earlier, about accountability. And 
one thing I have found uh, that it's still even after four years of being retired uh, to get a little comfortable with is talking about politics. Although I do hold my elected representatives accountable, you can ask them, uh, is talking about issues dealing with the FBI. So I see that uh, Director Ray, and I have met Director Ray how many times? I think three times. Uh, met Director Mueller several times. Met, uh, unfortunately, Jim Comey a few times. And met the first director that I worked for, Louis Free, several times. And they, um, I'll just say, you know, my experience, again, there's one, two, three, four directors I worked for. Louis Free was definitely the top. Uh, we saw a dramatic change when uh, Free handed the reins over to Robert Mueller. I think that uh, Robert Mueller probably did the best he could in the first year, especially with 9-11 happening, because he'd only been on the job a few months uh, when 9-11 happened. And I think his uh, initial knee-jerk reaction was just, how can I hold this agency together? And thus was born this intelligence mindset of the FBI. And then things slowly started changing with, uh, we need to move agents around. Now, Director Mueller, I believe, was in the Marine Corps. And the military operates a little differently. Things are more plug-and-play in the military. I spent 13 years in the Air Force. So if you have a an MOS, as they say, in the Army, or I think that's the same term in the Marine Corps, uh, it was an Air Force specialty code when I was in the Air Force. When you're trained in that specific function within the Air Force, you are a cog and a, uh, a a cog and a wheel or in a machine, and you can be moved from one location to the other and pick up and move straight from there. It doesn't work that way in the FBI, and I think that was one of the first mistakes that Robert Mueller made was setting up this transfer policy that he had. Uh, when I came into the FBI, you were sent to a field office, and this was in the 90s. And once you got there, you probably could stay there your whole career if you if you desired. Uh, there was a preference list. We called it a PRL or an OP, an Office of Preference List, that it, as you built up seniority as slots came open in a particular office, the more senior you were and willing to move, you could assume one of those slots if they were going to fill it with a more senior agent instead of an agent right out of the academy. Well, Robert Mueller came in and changed the mindset, uh, changed the policy to start moving agents around that were in small to medium offices. After about three years, they had to go to a large office. And that was a problem. Because, number one, it cost a lot of money to move an agent inside the FBI to another office. And it uh, took experience somebody had just kind of gotten up and running by the time they'd been in about three years and you pull them out of the office and now you got an empty slot in that small to medium office well an office like the washington field office or new york field office that have upwards of a thousand or more agents it's easy to absorb when you pull one or two agents out of there but if you get a small division and i'm not going to say which divisions they are that may only have about 75 agents, you pull five agents out of that, that's a, that's a significant percentage of experience that you're pulling out that's not going to be readily replenished. 
And that started causing some problems. I actually had that conversation with uh, Director Mueller to the chagrin of the special agent in charge at the time. I had uh, transferred down to Jackson from Washington, D.C. as a supervisor, a desk supervisor, and we had a meeting. And one of the reasons I was brought down here was to try to get our cyber program going that was virtually non-existent. And we were uh, having difficulty getting it moving. We had a lot of other things that were competing with it. Uh, at that time, those of you that were here in the early 2000s remember Mayor Frank Melton and his uh, exploits, which drew the attention of the uh, federal, state, and local government. Uh, I also had that civil rights program that had to address some of the things that he was doing. And then the <clears throat> the agents that were working cyber were continuously pulled away from me and being sent to other offices, and I wouldn't get what we would call backfill. So the other agents kind of had to absorb uh, what little experience that we were generating on the cyber front. So we're sitting in a meeting, and Director Muller's there. He had done one of his field office visits. And during that meeting, uh, our analyst was putting on a, a display of, you know, our metrics of, you know, cases that are open, informants we had addressing uh, threats, and uh, how successful we, we were at addressing those threats. And the cyber program was, whoa, it was not doing well. So he looked around the room and he asked, well, why is the cyber program having so many problems down here in this, in this field office? And they were looking at me because I was the desk supervisor. And I said, well, every time we get somebody up and trained, and it tends to be some of the younger, newer agents that are more excited about learning this cyber stuff, working with these computers. They seem to have more of the background coming from the private sector. Uh, they get snatched out, and they get sent to these larger field offices, and it leaves us with a deficit. So he looked at me. He said, so you're telling me that my three-year rotational policy is what's causing the problem? Well, those of you that have been listening to me on this show <laughs> know that I, I just say what the truth is and I looked directly in his face and I said yes sir that is exactly what the problem is the room fell hush I saw the uh, color of the <laughs> drop out of the face of the special agent in charge I saw eyes get big of the analyst and then director Muller did something that let me know exactly what he was about he started laughing and then everybody else kind of laughed along he didn't take it seriously, didn't care what I had to say, didn't care the fact that, you know, we were struggling down here because of the things that he had put in place, those policies. <clears throat> that also brings us to Jim Comey. So Comey takes over, and we don't even have to get into his June 5th speech about Hillary Clinton back in 2016, where when he made that speech, I was in the gymnasium at the office with a younger agent, and he asked me what I thought about what he just said about saying that no uh, prosecutor would bring this case. I looked at him and I said, uh, he should be fired immediately. He said, why? I said, because he just took on a role that's not assigned to him. We're here to investigate violations of U.S. law, the Constitution, and we are not the prosecutors. 
That would be Department of Justice or the U.S. Attorney's Office. They make those decisions, not the FBI director. <clears throat> he is usurping the authority of the attorney general. Now, I wasn't a big fan of the attorney general at that time, Eric Holder. But he usurped that authority. Oh, well, excuse me, that was 2016. Yeah, 2016. Uh, so it was either Loretta Lynch or Holder. I'd have to go back and look. I wasn't a fan of either one of them. But I said he usurped the authority of the attorney general. He should be fired. That simple. So I'm uh, looking at information that we've got right now, and I see that Director Ray is testifying on the Hill. Um, I'll tell you what. Let's take a quick call. We'll give it just a moment. We've got Wade on the line, then I'll get right back to Director Ray's testimony. Wade, what do you want to talk about? Um, I just wanted to ask you a question. Sure. What part of the apparatus is keeping the FBI that was in January 6th and the FBI Comey and all that? What what part of the government or the FBI, is it the FBI, that's keeping them from being arrested for the crimes that they're doing? Well, if you want to get it down to it bare bones, I'm talking to one of them. I'm one of them. Right. The citizens are. On the next level... It's your elected representatives. Are you holding them accountable? What are they going to do about it? So you've got Director Ray testifying on the Hill today. And according to Jim Jordan, he's going to be asked a lot of questions. And he's going to... Well, we, we know what he's going to say, though. He's going to cover his tail just like Comey. Well, not you know. just cover his tail. So I, I, I have some issues with the way that he comports himself before uh, that committee with saying it's an ongoing investigation or I'm not going to discuss that. No, you're going to talk about it because well, know, because they have the oversight. They do. So, well, I know in the 70s and 80s, if you were an FBI agent and somebody above you was doing something, you busted them. That's not happening now. They're not they're not taking out when somebody's doing breaking a law or doing something wrong beside them. They're letting them do it. Well, let, let's why, let's why, take why, a look. Let's take a look at what, what what's happening to the people that are bringing this sunlight to it. What what's happening to some of these whistleblowers once they bring well, the information? Well, I understand out? that, but who's where, who's attacking them? Who's going after those people? Is it the FBI or is it the government in general or is it the presidency? Because I know they wasn't doing it under Trump as bad, but they were trying to. And of course, they did everything nefarious they could. Um, but but it's now it's like it's blatant that they can do it in your face and and you could be filmed doing it. You can have. Like January six, we could pick out the FBI agents in the in the photos. Why isn't somebody doing something about that? Because we're not holding our elected representatives accountable to make sure that something happens. You you can ask all the, they can ask all the questions that they want, uh, and you know and, until there's some accountability. And the way the accountability happens is you holding your elected representative accountable. So you ask them the questions. What do you think about this? And when they tell you what's a bad thing that the FBI is doing this or Department of Justice or Homeland Security, that there, it's a bad thing that uh, Mayorkas, who's the Secretary of Homeland Security, is doing down yes. on the border. OK, well, what are you yeah. going to do about it? That, I mean, I, I listen to Michael Guest. Well, on, to I listen to Michael Guest on another radio show and he talked about going the to the border. But who what's he going to do about it? power to take them out? We do. Just the people. There's not part of the government that's supposed to be watching their own feet, you know, watching their own hands and taking care of business. 
again, again, it comes down to accountability of us holding our elected representatives accountable. We've got to take a break. I appreciate you calling in, Wade. Uh, call you, in sir. again, and, uh, and and I'd love to chat with you more. This is okay. Chris Hinkle on WYAB, in for Kim Wade. And call in uh, 601-879-0002. All right, it's Chris Hinkle in. This is the last portion of my time here with Kim on the Kim Wade Show on WYAB. Real quick before I get off, and I wanted to cover this, there's an article I was reading today called The Seven Unanswered Questions Ahead of FBI Director Ray's Testimony. I'm pretty confident that some of these questions are going to get asked by Jim Jordan, but I want to go through these seven questions and give you a couple questions that I would ask as a retired FBI agent knowing how the internal uh, things work. Number one, why did the FBI withhold the FD-1023 from Congress? It's a question I'd like an answer to. If it's subpoenaed, you've got to provide it. Congress has the oversight. But then again, if we don't hold our elected representatives accountable of what are you going to do about it, it really doesn't have a lot of teeth. Why did the FBI's Washington field office conduct the raid at Mar-a-Lago in a break from standard practice? Again, that goes back to where they keep pulling things to uh, Washington, D.C., with oversight there, and the Washington field office is just down the street from FBI headquarters. Why did the FBI limit the number of witnesses who IRS investigators could contact during the Hunter Biden investigation? I hope they asked that question today. What has the FBI done to investigate the attacks on anti-abortion centers and churches? Are agents who worked on the Russia investigation still in the FBI? Has Merrick Garland ever asked you to stand down on an investigative step? Simple questions. Should be able to answer those. Can't say that you're not going to comment. And I've got three questions that I would want to ask. When can I get a look at the manifesto of the Nashville transgender domestic terrorist murderer? Been a long time. Hadn't heard a lot of people asking about it. Media seems to have forgotten about it. I still want to know, when are we going to get a look at that manifesto? When are we going to get a look at Epstein's client list? Been dead a while. Jelaine Maxwell's been in prison for a while. The list exists. You and I both know why they're not going to give that. And the last thing that I'd want to know is some additional information about the agents who took a knee in Washington, D.C., during the protest. I can tell you I wouldn't have taken a knee. Well, thanks again for your time here. It goes by so fast. Appreciate Kim Wade for having me in. This is Chris Hinkle, your Radio G-Man, in for Kim Wade on WYAB. Thank you.